0: All right, so by way of review, last week we saw chapter 18, John sees the uh, final destruction of Babylon, the fall of Babylon. It specifically uh, dealt with the political side, the uh, economic side, because in chapter uh, 17 we saw the religious side of Babylon fall, the apostate church that for three and a half years will occupy... um, space and time during the first half of the tribulation. It will be closely associated with Antichrist, and then he'll turn on it because he wants to be the only show in town. He will use that apostate church to draw people away from God because God is going to be evident. He's the one that's going to be bringing the judgments. Uh, There will be the 144,000 Jews sharing the testimony of Christ. There will be all kinds of activity going on, the two witnesses, and yet this apostate church will draw people away from the one true God and faith in Christ. So we saw in chapter 18 the fall of the governmental, political, economic side of Babylon. And it was a great fall. It was something that's going to be devastating for that kingdom, the kingdom of Satan on this earth. So we know it's going to happen quickly. We don't know how long. It says an hour. We saw in chapter 18, for in a single hour your doom has come. Is it a literal hour? Maybe. My problem is not that it's an hour. Um, My problem is why would it take God that long? Um, I mean, God could do it in a nanosecond. God doesn't need an hour. Uh, I tend to think this is just an indication that it's going to take no time at all for God to destroy Babylon. In a single hour, such great wealth has been destroyed. However long it takes him, Antichrist, to build this kingdom, which is roughly seven years, because the destruction of it comes at the end of seven years, so he begins at the start of the seven years. He's built this great kingdom in seven years, but in an hour, it's gone. All its wealth, all its influence, everything is gone. So really what we see is... God doing something to prepare for something new to come. What is that new thing to come? The kingdom of Christ on this earth. And and so he's got to get rid of Satan's kingdom. Now, we've talked about this before, and this is always hard for us to kind of get our heads and hearts around, that that Satan rules this world. And as Christians, that's kind of disconcerting to us because we've been taught and we believe that God rules this world. And he does. But he has given Satan the right, the ability to rule this planet. And so that's what he does right now. And he is in charge of this planet. But God's going to get rid of his kingdom on this earth so that he can establish Christ's kingdom on this earth. They can't coincide. Now, you might say, well, they are right now. But see, we don't have the kingdom of Christ in its fullness right now. Christ is not sitting on the throne of David. He is not ruling and reigning in the hearts and lives of men. He is not ruling in righteousness on this earth. He is in the sense that he's ruling through our lives. But let's face it, is he always ruling in righteousness in your life? No, we're, we're not obedient. We're not always submissive to his will and his way and his spirit who lives within us. But there's a day coming when the kingdom of Christ will come. So Satan, who's the God of this world, has to be eliminated. And that's where we are in chapter 19 as we move forward. He's going to be taken out of the picture. And Antichrist, his chosen representative on earth, because remember he gave him his his throne, his power, his authority, he's going to be eliminated Why? Because God is getting ready to do something completely new. He's going to set up the kingdom of His Son on this earth. And yes, I believe it will be an earthly kingdom. I believe Jesus Christ is going to come and He's going to reign on earth because that's what the Scriptures indicate. And and that may be difficult for us to understand, and it may be something we don't necessarily even agree with, but I think we have to just keep going back to what do the Scriptures promise, what do the Scriptures say? So what's being eliminated? Well, it's Babylon. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. It's a done deal, used in the past tense. It's gone. It will be out of here. Satan will be eliminated, uh, at least for a period of time. And that's going to be an interesting thing we look at. But Antichrist and the false prophet will be eliminated. And we saw the reaction, right? Alas, alas, whoa, whoa, Babylon is gone. The sadness that's associated with the loss of Babylon has nothing to do with Babylon as much as it has to do with What I lose when Babylon goes away, the kings of the earth, the merchants of the earth, the sailors who sail the ships that take the merchants' goods, all cry and moan because of everything they've lost. And they say, what city was like the great city? Well, just wait a second and you'll see. Just hang on because it's coming. There is a great city coming. There is something that's going to happen like nothing the world has ever seen before. There's a kingdom coming like no other kingdom the world has ever seen before. Now, we've said that the kingdom of Antichrist was like no other kingdom before because he did what every dictator, despot, evil ruler of the world, or at least attempted ruler of the world has tried to do, consolidate power in one man over the entire world. Antichrist will do that. But guess what? His kingdom will be destroyed in an hour. It'll be gone because something new is coming. We see in chapter 18, verse 20, this this statement in the midst of all those calls, all those uh, people saying things about the fall of Babylon, we see the positive one here. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Over who? Babylon. Babylon fallen. Rejoice. And you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Now, this goes back to uh, chapter 6. If you remember, the tribulation saints are shown standing before the the throne of God and they're crying out. Now, they're tribulation saints. They're martyrs. They have been martyred by Antichrist. We're told that they were beheaded by Antichrist. And they're a multitude. There's a lot of them. And they're standing before God and they're going, how much longer before you avenge us? Well, here it is. He's getting ready to avenge them. He's getting ready to To bring judgment upon Antichrist, he's destroyed his kingdom, but he's not yet dealt with Antichrist himself and the false prophet. See, Babylon is is going to get replaced. And the more I think about this, the more I realize as I look around the world today and I see all that's going on, and we live in Babylon right now. The the symbol of Babylon is alive and well. I believe there's a real Babylon that's gonna be rebuilt. I believe it will be a real kingdom overruled by a real man, Antichrist. Don't know who he is, Doesn't, doesn't really matter to me. But I do believe we live in the context of Babylon right now. We live in a fallen world. We live under the context of the control of Satan in this realm. That's why we see so many bizarre things being decided and things happening in our culture that make us shake our heads and go, how is this happening? Because we live in Babylon. And that's part of what Jonathan Lehman's going to talk about is that we live in Babylon and how do we live out our faith in the midst of a political system that is heavily influenced by Babylon, this world, the kingdom of Satan. But see, it's going to get replaced one day, which is hard for me to imagine this world, this context without Babylon, without the influence of Babylon, but it is coming. And that's what this chapter is all about. So let's look at it. John says, after this, after what? After the fall of religious Babylon, economic Babylon, political Babylon, after it's been destroyed, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out. We looked at this verse briefly last week. It's one of those, again, somebody saying something, somebody speaking something in relationship to the fall of Babylon. What do they say? They say, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute Babylon who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So what's the reaction from heaven at the fall of Babylon? Well, while the kings of the earth and the merchants of the earth and the sailors of the earth and everybody in the earth is moaning and bemoaning the fact that Babylon has fallen, well, they're rejoicing in heaven. They're crying out. They're crying out and they're saying something in response to what they see, but it's a positive response. It's not negative. It's rejoicing. Why? Because God is getting rid of evil and we should rejoice at the fall of evil. We should rejoice when evil loses because that's what God wants. God wants to eliminate evil from this earth. He wants to eliminate evil from my heart and your heart. And when we see victory take place in one another's lives over evil, whether it's pornography or adultery or whatever, we should rejoice because that's the heart of God, getting rid of evil in the world. And they say something interesting. They say, hallelujah. Now, I doubt there's Anybody in this room, well, maybe one or two, who use this word regularly. If you do, you either use it facetiously, like, hallelujah, I won the lottery. Hallelujah, the Cowboys made it to the playoffs. Um, Or because you grew up charismatic. But we don't use this word. Why? Because it it doesn't mean much to us. It's uncomfortable. It sounds a little archaic. It sounds a little off-putting. But we're going to see it said over and over again in this chapter. Hallelujah. Well, what's it mean? Why is this great multitude in heaven saying hallelujah? Well, the Hebrew word is halal. Now, we're looking at the Greek, but it goes back to the Hebrew. And the Hebrew word is halal, which means praise, and Yah, which is God. Praise God. So it ought to be something we say, now you don't have to say hallelujah, but you ought to be saying praise God on a regular basis for who he is, what he's done, what he's doing, and what he's going to do in your life, in this world, and in the world to come. Praise God. They say it repeatedly all throughout the chapter, and the Greek transliteration is hallelujah. Praise God. And and that's really what I want to concentrate on this morning. A lot of stuff going on in this chapter, but don't miss out that over and over again, this word appears. And it only appears in this chapter in the entire New Testament, which blows my mind. Nowhere else in the New Testament, the gospels, the letters of Paul, the letters of Peter, James, it never appears, but it appears multiple times in this chapter in the context of what? The fall of Babylon and the coming of the kingdom of Christ. So as much as I should praise God for all the things he's doing in my life right here, right now, I'll, I'll give you guys a, a, an example. Some of you guys who've been involved in men's ministry for any period of time, there was a period of time where I told Hudson stories. Uh, Hudson's my youngest son, and I told lots of Hudson stories. And I finally stopped because I felt convicted that someday he's going to grow up and listen to these. Um, well, my son Hudson uh, was me on steroids, and he... Uh, Graduated from high school, um, barely. Ended up at OU studying engineering. Lasted one semester. Ended up with a 1.1, flunked out. I pulled him out. And I gave him an ultimatum. You can move out, get a job, do whatever you want. You can go back to school, but you're going to pay for it. Or you can join the military. And he goes, I don't like any of those. And I said, OK, come up with a fourth. Well, then one day he comes up and he goes, I'm going to join the military. OK, why? I need to grow up. Great answer. Which which branch? Marines. Okay, you really do want to grow up. Um, <laughs> fast forward five years later. He's in the Marines. He's a sergeant. And he went back, and he um, knew he needed to go back to school. He's getting out in about a month. So he took his SAT over because he didn't do well the first time, and he blew the doors off, which shocked both my wife and I. Well, yesterday he calls me from Japan where he's stationed, and he says, Dad, I've been... Um, um, accepted to Harvard. And I said, who is this? Who is this? And I said, are you kidding? I knew he applied, but I didn't think he was going to get in. And not only did he get accepted to Harvard, but he has a full ride to Harvard. So what's my point? Praise God. Praise God. Hallelujah. However, whatever language you want to say it in, hallelujah. And I went home, my wife and I were talking about it. And I was like, okay, is, is he really my son? You know, come on. I, there's no way. I never dreamed I'd have a kid at, at Harvard, but um, praise God. But even more importantly than that, praise God for what he's going to do. Praise God for the kingdom that's coming. See, I love the fact that my son got accepted into Harvard. I'm not real tickled pink that he's going to such a liberal school, but he wants to study law, so be it. But I should be even more praise, I should offer more praise to God for what he's going to do than even that, than even that. So over and over again, in this chapter, they say, praise God, praise him, praise him for what he's going to do. And it's, it's a word that's used all throughout the Old Testament. But again, only in this chapter in the New Testament. We see it in Psalm chapter 104, listen to what it says. May sinners disappear from the earth. That that ought to be every one of our prayers. Not, Not in a vengeful way, but guys, until that happens, guess what? The kingdom doesn't come. Until every sinner disappears from the earth and the wicked vanish. That doesn't mean you should hate sinners and wish them all dead. But until God does this, the kingdom doesn't come. And then it goes on and says, praise the Lord. Halal Yah is the exact word here. Halal Yah, oh O my soul. Halal Yah. Why? Because that day is coming. It's a prayer, but it will be fulfilled. And we're going to see it fulfilled in this chapter. So it goes on. It says, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. In the original Greek, it's the salvation, the glory, the power belong to our God. It's his and his alone. Only he can bring salvation. Only he deserves glory. Only he has the kind of power we're talking about that will do the things that we see in this chapter and throughout this entire book. And it's all based on judgments that are true and just. He never does anything out of uncontrolled anger. He never does anything unjustly, undeserved. He always does it righteously and rightly because he's God. For he has judged the great prostitute who has corrupted the earth. So salvation, glory, and power belong to our God. And this one's kind of interesting because we got to kind of step back from our typical view of salvation. What is salvation? It's placing your faith in Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for me, for you, for sinful man. And when I place my faith in him, I am made right with God. I am justified. I am put in a right relationship with God, and I am guaranteed an eternal salvation. But there's more to it. This is not referring to that kind of salvation. It's included, but it's more than just my justification being made right with God and my sanctification, my growth in Christ's likeness. Because if Jesus Christ does not come back, none of that matters. You don't have a salvation if Jesus Christ doesn't come back. He's got to come back. He's got to finish and complete what he does. Now, those of us who believe in the rapture of the church Let's fast forward. Let's, let's say that happens and we go. We're, we're taken to be with him, but he doesn't come back. Guess what? Salvation is not complete. Because everything else has to happen before what? The true eternal state. So yes, we'll be with him, but unless he comes back and does everything God has promised, salvation is not complete. Redemption is not complete. There is a final phase to God's redemption. Jesus Christ came once in the form of a baby, lived as a man, died a sinner's death, rose again, and returned to heaven. But he's got to come a second time. It's the second part of the the process. So what we're seeing in this chapter is him coming back to earth. And the redemption, the final salvation of mankind and the earth comes when he returns. It's got to be finished. It's got to be completed. And so they say, hallelujah. Once more they cried out, hallelujah, hallelujah, praise God. The smoke from her, Babylon, goes up forever and ever. It just means that she is done. This evil kingdom that we live in right now that will be on steroids when Antichrist rebuilds it is going to be eliminated. How long? Forever and ever. For eternity. And it it creates, again, this... Idea of hallelujah, praise the Lord. And the 24 elders who represent the church in heaven, who we met at the beginning of this book, the four living creatures fell down and they worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, once again, amen, hallelujah, praise God. And from the throne came a voice saying, once again, praise God. But it's interesting that there's two words put together here, amen, hallelujah. It seems like it ought to be the other way around, right? We always put the amen at the end. Hallelujah, amen. Amen. Well, what's going on here? This word's pretty significant because, once again, it's a word that we use flippantly. We throw it at the end of a prayer. It's like the period at the end of our prayer, but it literally means, so be it. Why is it before praise God? So be it, praise God. Well, it's not a request as much as it is a statement. Let it happen. Let it be fulfilled. Hallelujah. It's going to be fulfilled. I'm going to praise God because it's going to happen. These things are going to take place. And it's directly related to another Greek word, and they're very similar, amam, which means believe. See, one of the things as we study this book is this is a book that is very, very hard to believe, right? It's, it's fantastic. It's got all kinds of bizarre imagery. It's hard to believe, but... If you're going to praise God for what has not yet happened, you got to believe that God can make it happen. So when, he's, when, when these elders and these, 20, these four creatures praise God, they say, amen, so be it, let it be, it's going to happen, praise God. They believe in the promises of God. Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith. What does it say about every one of those Old Testament saints? Moses and Noah and David. They believed God for what they didn't even see. See, we need to praise God for the things we haven't seen. We need to quit worrying about what's surrounding us and all the stuff that's flying around us and getting so sweaty palmed about this earth and realize that, amen, praise God, he's got a plan, he knows what he's doing. But it's going to require belief. It's going to require belief in him, who he is, what he says, and what he's going to do. That's why they go on and say, praise our God, all you his servants, all who fear him, small and great. Praise God. I think one of the things that we don't do enough of as believers in this 21st century context is praise God. And you may say, well, give me something to praise him for. We just did. You should be praising him for who he is, for all that he's done. He's done plenty. We just forget about it. You should be praising him for the things he has not yet done. What kind of praise would mean more to God? Me praising God for the fact that my son got accepted to Harvard, or let's go back five years and me saying, praise God for what you're going to do in my son's life because I know you're not done with him. See, one requires... True belief and faith. The other one is a response to something God has just done. See, if God parts the waters and you walk across on dry ground, it's easy to go, praise God. And if he causes the waters to crush your enemies, it's really easy to go, amen, praise God. But when you're standing at the brink of the water and it hasn't opened and the enemies behind you getting ready to attack you, to say, praise God, right then, that takes belief. Because everything in you wants to go, let's get out of here. Let's run, let's escape. But see, we, sh- we as of all people, his servants, all who fear him, who have awe of him, should be saying, praise our God all the time because he is not done. Well, verse six says, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of a mighty peal of thunder. I think it's the same group. I believe the great multitude are the same people we saw earlier in the book. It's, it's the tribulation saints who are standing before the throne of God, and they're praising him. It may include us, the church, but I think specifically because of the way it's referred to, I think it's those tribulation saints who have died because of Antichrist, and they're so excited about what they see happening And they cry out again, hallelujah, hallelujah, praise God. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. He is in control. There's nothing to worry about. Your God is not up in heaven. He is not in awe looking down going, what in the world? How did this take place? He's not shocked. He's not surprised. He's got a plan. He reigns. So we should rejoice. We should exult. We should give him glory. And here's the key. Here's what they know is about to happen. And this is where we get put back into the scene. It says, the marriage of the lamb has come. Who's the lamb? Jesus Christ. John met him early on in the book. He is the lamb who stands as though slain. He's the sacrificial lamb. He's the one who gave his life for you and I. And it's the marriage of the lamb. It's time. It's ready. It's here. The bride, his bride has made herself ready. What's going on here? Well, to understand this, we've got to kind of go back and understand what a wedding looked like in that day, first century, ancient Israel. What did weddings look like? And I can tell you this, they don't look anything like what we go through. My youngest daughter's engaged. She's going to get married in August. I did not pick her husband to be, had no role in it. Fortunately, I like him. I especially like him because he called me last night and he said, hey, I want to come up with a plan to pay back Mandy's School loans. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, as her husband, I want to take that on. I'm like, halal, yeah. (laughs) Praise God. I'll send you the forms right now. But see, I didn't pick him. (laughs) She's lucky I didn't pick who I probably would have picked. Why is this important that it's different? What's important about it? Well, it involves us, the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. The scriptures make it perfectly clear. We are now entering back into this story. Ephesians 5, 25 and 27 tells us that that's who we are. That's our role. But we are betrothed to Christ. We're not yet consummated. Now, if you don't know what that word means, come talk to me. Especially if you're married and you don't know what that word means. See, that word means that you get to fulfill your duties as a husband and consummate and have the sex you've always dreamed of with, with the woman you've always dreamed about. See, my greatest fear growing up, and this is true, I'm not making this up, my greatest fear as a kid, especially as a young teenager with the hormones you know, raging in my body, was I'd hear my dad say, yay, Lord Jesus, come, and I'd go, hey, dad, tap the brakes, <laughs> hold on there's something I'm waiting for that you've told me I have to wait for and I'm not quite ready for him to show up yet. I never said that to his face, but I thought it. And I I literally had a dream, a recurring dream that it was my wedding day. And we we go to the hotel and it's the wedding night and I'm going to consummate the thing I've been waiting for for life, and the trumpet sounds. I guarantee you, I had that dream more than once, and it's the rapture. Of anybody sh- who should not want to believe in the rapture, it's me. But I really thought Jesus—some kind of sick joke God's going to pull—is that you've waited, you've been, you've remained pure, and guess what? On the night of your wedding, and I, I'm like, wait. I digress. See, the marriage, we are betrothed to Christ, but we've not yet consummated the, the, the wedding, the marriage. Now, this is always dangerous. I'm a guy talking to a room full of guys, and I'm talking to you as you're, you and I are the bride. That ought to make you uncomfortable, right? There's a lot of gender confusion right now. I'm not confused about that at all. I don't want to be the bride. I want to be the groom. But see, in this context, you're the bride. Get over it we should be excited about that. But we are betrothed to Christ, but we've not yet consummated the wedding. See, here's what it says. Paul tells the Corinthian believers, I I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband. And he explains who it is. To present you as a pure virgin to Christ. We are betrothed to Christ. What's betrothal? That's important. Well, in a Jewish wedding, a typical traditional Jewish wedding, there's three phases. First is betrothal. And this is like our engagement, but it's different. Because unlike my daughter, she chose the guy she wants to marry. He came and met with me and my wife. We gave our permission. That's not the same thing as betrothal. Betrothal was a legally binding contract made by two sets of parents on behalf of their two very young children. They would come together as parents and they'd go... My Mary likes your Joseph. Your Joseph seems to like my Mary. Or they may not even know each other. They would just say, we think they'd make a great couple. Therefore, let's sign a contract. And the two young people had no choice in it. They had no say in it. And it could only be broken by divorce. So you remember the story of Mary and Joseph? They were betrothed. They had not yet consummated the marriage. And then Joseph gets the bad news that you're what? You're pregnant? And what's his response? I'll divorce her. See, they had not yet consummated the wedding. They were not yet truly man and wife. They were legally bound to one another by contract, but they had not consummated the marriage. And this could last for years. It could start at 10, 11, 12, and go all the way to 15 before you actually had the wedding. So we're in that that phase as a church. We're in the betrothal phase. Second is the presentation. This takes place prior to the ceremony. And typically what would happen is the groom would come and get his bride. Guess what the rapture is? Jesus Christ comes back for his bride and takes her where? To his father's house. That's what happens in a typical Jewish wedding. After several years, multiple years of betrothal, he goes and gets his bride, and he brings her to his father's house. And there may be another period of long waiting before the ceremony. See, we haven't seen the ceremony yet. We've not completed this process of marriage with Christ, between Christ and the church, the bride. And that's the final stage. That's what we're looking at here. It completes the process. It's the third stage or third phase in the marriage, and then comes the feasting. Then comes the excitement. You know, I I do a lot of weddings, and I go to more weddings than I would like to go to, and I don't particularly like to go to weddings because they last way too long. My wife and I were talking, we went to a wedding the other night and I said, why do they last so long now? Because I remember our wedding. Our wedding was 90% ceremony and 10% celebration. We literally, we got married, went into the fellowship hall, just right down the hall, because it was a Southern Baptist church, go to fellowship hall. There's a cake, a bowl of nuts and some punch. (laughs) Nobody toasted anybody. Nobody danced with anybody because we're Southern Baptists. And pretty much it's, bam, it's over. When I was, I was okay with that. Now it's 18 toasts, 14 combination dances, a meal, more dancing, and then at some point the cake. And I always want to leave right after the meal. My wife's like, no, we're waiting for the cake. Why? Why? It's not even good cake because I I like the cake. Then we're going to throw the rice. They don't throw rice. Okay, we're going to throw the birdseed. It can last hours. Well, guess what? That's the way it was then. Huge celebration, huge feast, and guests were invited to come join the celebration. So what do we see here? The marriage of the lamb has come. Now, notice the terminology here. The marriage of the lamb, the ceremony has come. It's time to bring this couple together and finalize it. And it says, the bride has made herself ready. This is an interesting one to me because it, it ought to create in you some, somewhat of a disconnect. Because, wait a second, I, don't, I didn't think I made myself ready. I didn't think I'm the one that made myself pure and clean and white. You're right. So it sounds a little bit confusing and misleading. And here's what Paul tells us. He says, Christ loved the church, gave himself for her to sanctify her by cleansing her with the washing of the water by the word so that he may present the church, his bride, to himself as glorious, not having a stain or wrinkle or any such blemish, but holy and blameless. See, we don't really make ourselves pure. We make ourselves pure by aligning ourselves with who? Jesus Christ, the groom. The groom but it says her, she's clothed herself with what, fine linen, bright and pure. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Again, really? I'm the one who makes myself righteous? No. What, is, what do we see in Isaiah? We're all infected and pure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Your best deeds on your best day done with the best of intentions are filthy rags before God. But we do know that we are made right and righteous through Jesus Christ when we place our faith in him. And therefore, anything we do from that point forward that is righteous is because of him, not because of me, not because of you. He's the one who allows us to stand before him him as pure. See, Paul told the Corinthians, because of him, God, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let no one let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Everything you bring to the table, everything you bring to the wedding ceremony, the purity of your life is because of Jesus Christ. You owe it all to him, which should produce in you what? Praise God. Halal Yah. He did it all. For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We, as the body of Christ... The church, the bride, will stand with him at the ceremony and we will be made pure. The ceremony takes place in heaven right before he comes back to earth because we come with him. Right before his second coming, the wedding gets consummated. And then it says, the angel said to me, write all this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Second phrase. First was marriage of the Lamb. Here's the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is a different event. This is a ceremony, not a ceremony, but a celebration. This is the feast. Blessed are those who are invited. And he said to me, these are true words of God. And it says, then I fell down at his feet to worship him. He's so blown away. John is so taken by what he sees and what he's heard that he begins to worship the angel but that's not the point. Don't worship me, the angel tells him. But what's, what's he saying here? There's going to be people invited to this thing. And that gets John excited, so excited that he worships the angel. And he goes, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who holded the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, praise God, halal, yah, give him the glory. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Jesus is the fulfillment of all prophecy. From Genesis all the way to Revelation. But who's invited? Who are the guests at this feast? We are the bride, right? So it's not talking about us. The bride doesn't get invited to her own wedding. She's like the main show. So we're not invited. Well, who's invited? Well, I believe it's the Old Testament saints. Remember, this is taking place in heaven. So I believe it's people who are in heaven, the Old Testament saints. Moses is there. David is there. Elijah, Elisha. It's the hundred... Well, this, this is a mistake here. And I left it in my uh, presentation because it's in your notes and I want to clarify it. They will not be there because they're back on earth. They, they, they won't be there. So this was a mistake on my part when I put together the presentation. The 144,000 are down on earth. This, this wedding ceremony has taken place in heaven. The celebration will be in heaven. But I do think there will be tribulation saints, the martyrs, anybody who's died in Christ during the tribulation, physical death, just old age or whatever. Anyone who's come to faith in Christ during the seven years of tribulation who dies, just natural death, will go to be up there. They'll be at the wedding. They'll be invited. And all the martyred tribulation saints. So there's going to be this crowd. They're going to be there at this ceremony. They are not the bride. The bride is the church. So here's something that's really interesting to consider. Why isn't Israel included as the bride if they're saved the same way we are? Why aren't the redeemed of Israel part of the bride? Well, here's an interesting thing to consider. They're the wife of God. Israel is the wife of God. We're told that in Scripture. Look at Isaiah 54:5. For your husband, God, is the one who made you Israel. The Lord who commands armies is his name. He is your protector, the Holy One of Israel. He is called God of the entire earth. Israel is married to God. But the church is the bride of Christ. We see that they prove to be unfaithful over and over again. I just finished blogging my way through 66 books of Isaiah or 66 chapters of Isaiah, and over and over again, you see their unfaithfulness. You see it in the book of Ezekiel. Listen to what it says. Adulterous wife, God says to Israel, who prefers strangers instead of her own husband. All prostitutes receive payment, but instead you give gifts to every one of your lovers. They were so unfaithful, they were paying for infidelity, unfaithfulness. They were going after the gods of the other nations. They were an unfaithful wife. Hosea says, the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man, is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. The entire book of Hosea is about a man, a prophet, who's told by God at the very beginning, go marry a prostitute. What? Go marry a prostitute and have kids with her. He does. And then she leaves him and goes back into prostitution. And God says, go and get her, buy her out of prostitution and marry her again. It's all a visual, a testimony of Israel and God. The bride of God is an unfaithful bride, an unfaithful wife. She's adulterous, but God will be a faithful husband. So what we see in this is that he will bring his wife and she will be at this wedding. She will watch the marriage between Christ and the church. We see in Hosea... It goes on and says, For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince. That's their problem right now. They have no king, no prince. Without sacrifice or pillar, there is no temple. Without ephod or household gods, they have no priesthood. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, a reference to Jesus, the son of David. And they shall, <clears throat> they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. That's what this whole book's about. We're talking about the latter days. So then we see... Something great happens. And I'm going to blow through this because we're really going to deal with it next week. But I want to look at it because it sets up Jesus Christ consummates, finishes the wedding, the marriage with the church, and then he's going to come back to earth with us. Look at what it says. I saw heaven open. Behold, a white horse. The one sitting on is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. And it goes on to explain his eyes. It explains that he's going to come with power with a rod of iron. And he's riding this white horse, which brings back a memory of something we studied way back weeks and weeks and weeks ago. Revelation 6, two. I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. Who's this talking about? Antichrist. One of the manifestations of Antichrist. He's got a bow with no arrows. He really doesn't have the power he thinks he has. He will rule for a period of time, but he's not Christ. He's the Antichrist. He's the false Christ. And everything he does is an attempt to replicate what Christ does or will do. But guess what? No, he's going to be taken out of the picture. Because when this guy shows up on this white horse, he's got eyes like a flame of fire. He's got a crown, many crowns. He's got a name written that no one knows but himself. He's got a, a robe clothed, dipped in blood. He's got a name by which he's called the Word of God. Different name. There's three names in this passage. Three names. It goes on, it says, In the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, that's us, white and pure. We're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury, the wrath of God, God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, a third name, King of kings and Lord of lords. So what, what is this? Why three names? And what are they? Well, the first one, it says, only he knows. And it doesn't tell us. And to this day, nobody knows what this name is. We'll find out. The second one is the word of God. The third one is king of kings and lord of lords. What do they mean? Well, I think the first one is that he is transcendent. He is still mysterious. He is the God-man. He took on human flesh. We can relate to him. He died on our behalf. But guess what? He's still God. He's still mysterious and transcendent. He's the word of God. He is God incarnate. He is deity Don't ever forget that. He is the word of God, the revelation of God. And finally, he's going to come back as a king. He's sovereign. Yes, he died. Yes, he was the suffering servant, but he's not the suffering servant anymore, and he won't be when we look at the end of this book. So we see all of this happen as he strikes down the nations, and then there's going to be this incredible, terrible thing that happens when he strikes all the nations. It's called the Great Supper of God, Second Supper. Marriage Supper of the Lamb, you want to be there, you don't want to be at this one. This is a supper you don't want to go to, because guess what? It's for a different group, and they're the menu. Literally, they're the menu, because the birds of the air are going to come, and they're going to feast. It's the battle of Armageddon. It's the aftermath of that battle, and it's not a celebration. It's a complete annihilation of all evil. Remember Psalm 104, getting rid of all the wicked, getting rid of those who stand against God. Now, there are going to be wicked who are not killed in this battle. It's not everybody on earth that's wicked. We'll see what happens to them later. But we do see that God does something great. We know that the beast gets captured, with him the false prophet, they get thrown into hell, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Fun way to end this chapter, but again, it's going to get better next week. And all of this raises a whole lot of questions that we're going to get into next week about the millennial kingdom and other things and what happens to those who weren't at the battle. What does God do with the wicked? And we'll pick that up next week as we dig into chapter 21 or chapter 20. Guys, it's coming to a close. And, and, and when you walk out of here today, what I really want you to concentrate on is one thing, that, that little phrase, halal yah. And if you want to be facetious and you want to walk by me as you walk out and go, halal, ya, yeah, I'll take it. I'll take it as long as you start saying it and meaning it. Praise God. Remember, amen is tied to amam. Believe. Do you really believe that God is going to do something great? So here's your first question. The Old Testament saints, scratch the 144,000, they won't be there. All the tribulation saints will be guests at the marriage of the Lamb to his bride, the church. Why do you think they'll find this occasion one worth rejoicing in? In other words, they're not the bride, but they're guests. Why would they rejoice seeing the church and Christ consummate, complete that ceremony? What are they rejoicing about? Secondly, John describes the bride of Christ being clothed in fine linen or the righteous deeds of the saints. What does that mean? And here's what I really want you to think about. What do the righteous deeds of the the saints look like in your life and my life today? As you go out today, what would those deeds look like? Remember, it's directly tied to his righteousness lived out through you. Finally, we started out talking about the Hebrew phrase halal yah or praise God. I'd love it if you would close your time by each, each of you sharing one thing you can praise God for. It could be something he's done, something you're hoping he will do and something we just studied that we're told he's going to do. But every one of you, just, just take a second to say, I praise God for fill in the blank. Father, thank you for these guys. Thank you for the opportunity to study this book and... I know it's confusing and there's a lot of it we might disagree on, but Father, we do know this. You are a great, almighty God. You are worthy of praise. You have a plan and you're working that plan to perfection. There's nothing we need to worry about. Father, we know that whether there's a rapture or not, whether there's a millennial kingdom or not, whether we've gotten this all wrong, you haven't got any of it wrong. And you are deserving of our praise. Praise God. Hallelujah. Thank you for who you are. And may we walk from this room ready to praise you throughout the day, no matter what happens, because you're a good God, a great God, and you're a covenant-keeping God. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.